0: On January 26th, the Texas court ruled that mechanical ventilation and other support should be removed from the body of Marlies Munoz, who had been declared brain dead two months earlier, when she was 14 weeks pregnant. Her husband had sued the hospital when it refused to remove the support, citing a Texas law prohibiting the removal of life-sustaining treatment from a pregnant woman. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jeffrey Ecker, a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School, and director of obstetrical clinical research and quality assurance at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Ecker has written a perspective article on the Munoz case and its legal, ethical, and clinical implications. Dr. Ecker, has the Texas law been on the books for some time, or is this part of a new trend?
1: I actually don't know how long the law has been on the books, but I would point out that it's not a unique law, that there's a suggestion that well over 50% of states have some law, some statute restricting end-of-life care in women should they be pregnant.
0: So a key underlying issue is whether the autonomy of a pregnant woman should ever be compromised, can ever be compromised by considerations about the best interests of the fetus, even if it's difficult to know what those interests are or who should be accountable for them. So in general, what's your take on that question?
1: Well, I think that... You're right. It is difficult to know what the best interests of a fetus are. It's difficult even to really know exactly what interests are in relation to a fetus. But if anyone is going to know what the best interests of a fetus are, it's going to be a mother, the person who's pregnant. And in terms of who should be accountable, it seems to me beyond question that the one that should be accountable is the mother, and so decisions that she would make and are appropriately made by her outside of pregnancy, absolutely, from both an ethical, moral perspective, but also it seemed to me as a practical perspective, should belong to her.
0: In another recent Perspective article, Charo looked at a Wisconsin case in which a pregnant woman was arrested and held for several months because she refused to take anti-addiction medication, even though she was no longer using the painkillers to which she had been addicted. In your view, do the ethical considerations differ in these two types of cases, or are they similar?
1: I think they're very similar. I think there are a couple things to emphasize. The first is that almost always what women want is absolutely in the best interest not only of their own health and well-being, but their pregnancy as well. You know, as a high-risk obstetrician, the thing that's most important for a healthy pregnancy outcome is a healthy mother. And so women in general go to extraordinary lengths to do everything that is healthy for them and their pregnancy because they want a healthy outcome. What gets in the news tends to be the, the rare cases in which there seems to be a conflict between what a mother is doing and a best outcome. It should be emphasized that those cases are quite unusual, and it doesn't seem to me that the right approach, as I think Dr. Charo argued, the right approach is not to make criminals of women for not doing what some outside agency or body seems is in the best interest of their pregnancy. We should focus on allowing women to make choices and do what's best for their health. We should treat, whether it's drug addiction or other conditions as what they are, medical conditions that need to be appropriately treated, whether someone is pregnant or not. And we shouldn't focus on women's well-being and health just because they happen to be pregnant, but because they deserve good health and good care on their own.
0: A question you raise in your article is whether physicians are going to feel comfortable with conscientious objection to laws of this sort, laws that demand that they act against their better judgment, against the wishes of patients and families. What have physicians' responses been to recent laws of this sort?
1: You know, I don't know um, what individual physician responses have been. Organized medicine has taken a stance against it. Years ago, I had the privilege of serving as chair of the Ethics Committee for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and that group has a very clear position that women's rights, regardless of whether they're pregnant, should be respected, their autonomy should be respected in all matters, but especially the end-of-life in terms of their wishes regarding end-of-life care. I'm mindful of the fact, though, that it's easy for ethics committees and organizations to speak up and take a strong position. It can be difficult for individual physicians who maybe feel like the hospital attorney is telling them they have to do one thing. Maybe they're even suggesting things like, boy, your license could be in trouble here. You're not going to be able to practice here in the hospital anymore. And that places them in conflict with what they think, you know, the best thing to do is what their conscience is telling them to do. In this case, I can only imagine if I were the physician in Texas and I were being told, here's a patient and a family that once support withdrawn because a diagnosis of brain death had been made, I would feel it was absolutely wrong to be, have to continue that. But I understand that can be a very difficult thing to object to and say, no, I'm not going to do what the lawyers are telling me to do. But at the very least, I think as individuals and professionals, we can make our moral distress apparent to the public. We can make it clear to the press that we feel uncomfortable with that. We can make it clear to patients that we see that we think this is a wrong thing and advocate for change. And we can advocate for change ourselves in a public forum to try to get these laws changed.
0: In end-of-life decisions, is part of the struggle for physicians the fear that the decision is irrevocable perhaps, but the family may change its mind, they may in fact sue perhaps?
1: Boy, I really don't know that legal concerns, that threat of legal action is a big driver here. I think you know the issues that you raise, whether or not a family is sure, whether or not a patient has expressed her wishes, whether or not the family really understands the patient wishes, is going to be true in any case of end-of-life care, any case in which someone is brain dead and care is being withdrawn. I don't know that that changes because of pregnancy. I think the thing that I would point out in this case, which is in my mind why the actions were so egregious, is in many ways it seemed like this patient's wishes were very clear. How many young women have really considered what they would want at the end of life? Yet here we have a patient who was an EMT, her husband was an EMT, and because of their daily professional activities, at least as reported and communicated by her husband, they had considered their wishes here. So it seemed to me that this was a very clear case in which not only had a patient expressed her wishes, but the family had well understood them. Absolutely, it's a provider's obligation to be sure that people understand that these are irrevocable actions. You know, we're going to withdraw support from ventilation, her heart will stop, and it can't be started again. But that's true any time that support is withdrawn and not unique just to cases
0: you also note in your article that in some cases, critical support has been continued in brain-dead pregnant women and a healthy baby has been born. How long in the most extreme cases have women's bodies been used in that kind of incubator fashion?
1: You know, I don't know the details of individual cases, but my reading suggests that it has gone on as long as weeks and several months. So it can go on for a time. The outcome is always going to be a bit unpredictable. It'll depend on a lot of things, including what happened that incited the need for support, but also what happens during the course of continued support. Those things can be considered, but they need to be considered doing our best to understand what a patient's wishes are or would be and substituting for those or translating those wishes what the family's wishes are.
0: Finally, how have these debates and the ongoing debates about abortion and contraception affected your practice as an obstetrician gynecologist and how have they affected how you think about how future OBGYNs should be
1: trained? I think that you're correct that these issues often get wrapped up in debates, conversations about abortion. They get wrapped up in conversations about what respect, what moral standing, I guess is the phrase I would use, should be provided for the fetus. And those questions and debates aren't going to be easily settled, separate from what individuals organizations think about abortion. I don't think that the moral standing of women is in question and I really think that that's what's on the table in cases like this. You're right that increasingly, whether it's laws, legal action restricting end-of-life care, whether it's interventions and arrest of women who are using substances in pregnancy, Things are increasingly being framed through the lens of the fetus and what can be done to preserve the health of the fetus. I think that is really important to understand and recognize that we can't affect the fetus without affecting the mother, without affecting a woman. And I'm very concerned about any practice, any rule, any statute that restricts individuals, individual women's right to health care and the choices they make in health care. What does this mean for future training? Well, certainly we've seen that training in family planning and abortion is increasingly being limited for a host of reasons. But what cases like this point to is that things that I would not have thought would be on the table providing health care to women and respecting their autonomous decisions and decision-making seem to be increasingly matters of conversation. And I think it means that trainees and practicing obstetricians will need to become familiar with how to handle questions about this. And I hope take a strong stance in support of women's rights, health, and autonomy.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ecker.